Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you in the house this morning, and Good to see you. Well, I can't see you, but you can see me. Uh, Thanks for joining us online as well uh, this morning for the 11. Um, Hey, uh, we're continuing our teaching series about personal identity. And by personal identity, what we mean is your understanding of who you are. So your personal identity is, is your, the way that you see yourself. It is your sense of being. And personal identity is important. I think we can all agree on that. Because your personal identity is a powerful force in your life. Essentially, you live out of your identity. Your, your personal identity fuels you. It motivates you. It, it frames your actions. It, it sets the agenda for your day. Your entire life is driven by your identity. So let me give you an example. Uh, 2015, Ronda Rousey was the UFC women's bantamweight belt holder. That same year, she was proclaimed by Sports Illustrated as the world's most dominant athlete. And it was a title that was actually well-earned. Ronda Rousey was the first woman to ever win an Olympic medal in judo. She was the the youngest woman to qualify for the Olympics at just age 14. Okay, so when she entered into the octagon in the MMA, she, she literally became an unstoppable force. I mean, by 2015, she was 12-0 and 0 as an MMA fighter. Only one fighter had actually survived longer than one round with Ronda Rousey. Eight of her 12 fights were over within one minute. But then, in November 2015, something happened. Ronda Rousey was knocked out. She was knocked out by a lesser opponent with better tactics. Holly Holm, the preacher's daughter. She dominated Ronda in the first round, and then in the second round, she knocked her out with a roundhouse kick to the side of the head, which you can see in the picture there. It has been called the kick that echoed around the world. Now, after that, this this loss was was devastating to Rhonda. Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, so much of her identity was wrapped up in her winning, in being this champion. And and so shortly afterwards, she was on an interview with Ellen DeGeneres, and she was explaining kind of her frame of mind immediately after the fight. And here's what she said. She said, in the medical room, I was like down in the corner. I was sitting in the corner, and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and like thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. That was her frame of mind. Fortunately, she was able to pull herself out of that and, of course, become a a World Wrestling Federation uh, figure as well and make lots of movies. Um, But here's the thing. Is is, is Rhonda's whole identity was essentially inseparable from her image as being the most dominant athlete in the world. And and she she admitted, I mean, without this identity, she was nothing. She felt that she was unlovable. She felt that her life was just simply meaningless. And that's just a small example of how your identity can be this powerful force in your life. 
Now, if you joined me last week, we, we finished by talking about the five factors that, that form the foundation for human identity. And we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's the story of creation, God's creation of, of humanity. And, and we discovered five things about humans. First of all, humans are physical. Humans are social. Humans are spiritual. Humans are sexual. And of course, humans are special. And, and the reason why we're special is because we were created in the, in the image and in the likeness of God, which means that we were designed by nature to point people towards God. We were designed to steward God's creation on His behalf, and we were designed to be in relationship with God. So we're special. And, and what that means is that every single human being on the planet, no matter who you are, has worth and value and meaning and dignity that is just intrinsic in this reality that we are human beings created in the image of God. Now, what we didn't do last week uh, was to turn the page over from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis chapter 3. Because here's the thing, we might ask the question, okay, yeah, 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 that's true. That's true about human beings being valuable and having dignity and having this, this amazing, wonderful platform on which to build our identity. But here's the question, if humans are so special then why do we struggle so much with identity? Because I don't know about you, but I, there are times when I struggle with my identity. I have identity crises, micro and macro in my life, at different seasons in my life. That's what it means to be human. We struggle with identity. And I think if we did a poll, if we did a poll here in the house, and we added those people who are joining us online, and we, it was an anonymous poll, and you spoke honestly, I think across the board, it'd probably be like almost 100% people would agree. Yeah, yeah, we, we struggle with identity. Well, what we learn in Genesis chapter 3 is, is that human beings are fallen. I mean, we, we, you might be familiar with the story, Adam and Eve turned their back on essentially on God's grace. They believed that God was holding out on them for some reason, and so they decided they're going to disobey God, they're going to rebel against Him. And as a result of that, sin and death enter into the created world, into the created order. And as a result of that, everything was shattered, including our relationship with each other, our, our relationship with God, our relationship with all of creation, shattered. And because of sin, we, we now have broken and distorted versions of ourselves in this world. Now, the good news, though, of course, is that, is that God couldn't leave us in our brokenness and distortion. His purpose, His ultimate purpose, was send, to send His Son, Jesus, into the world to rescue and restore the entire created order, and that includes humanity. And, and He's doing this restoration work in the world now, and ultimately, He will complete His restoration work when He returns. So the restoration work that he's doing in us right now is to transform us into the image of his son, which means to return back to the Imago Dei, to become image bearers yet again, which was our purpose from the beginning. That's the restorative work that Jesus is doing in us through his Holy Spirit. And so that restoration work includes a renewed identity. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about our ultimate renewed identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is something that is available to every believer in Christ. Now, now to get there, I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to start reading at verse 23 together. Um, so if you have a paper version of the Bible, you have a digital version, I get you to go there um, and, and to follow along. But before we do that, let me give you a little bit of background to the text because it, it helps to frame our understanding of what we're reading. Uh, Galatians is a letter 
is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Galatia. And the reason why he's writing to them is he's trying to correct the problem that they have. Uh, they were starting to believe a false gospel, a distorted gospel. And the question on the table that they were trying to figure out was simply this. Are we made right before God through faith in Jesus Christ, or are we made right before God by believing and keeping the law of Moses? See, at that time, there were two major groups who lived in the church. Uh, there were, you, would, you could break it down very simply into Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And, and the Jewish group, the Jewish believers, believed that in order to gain right standing with God, you needed to keep the law of Moses, the Torah, okay? Because after all, wasn't Jesus a Jewish Messiah? Didn't he himself keep the law? And, and wasn't, what, wasn't this how Israel had demonstrated covenant faithfulness to God for like 1,500 years? So why wouldn't we as believers in Christ just keep on continuing keeping the law? And of course, this kind of created some tension because, I mean, the Jewish group was larger group probably and, and probably the more powerful group. And uh, they were forcing kind of these expectations on the Gentiles who are part of the community as well. And this would have been a challenge if you were a Gentile believer. You know, first of all, there's the, Jew, the Jewish dietary restrictions. And so you may have had certain foods that you liked. Um, and suddenly, with these dietary restrictions, you know, bacon's off the menu, for example, okay? Um, but the even bigger challenge would have been, hello, circumcision, okay? So if you're a 30-year-old male and you're like, okay, this is the newcomer's class, welcome to church, uh, surgeon's in the next room, okay, just head off there, and once that's there, then you can come and you can be part of the church. I mean, that's not a great evangelism strategy for any Gentile group, right? Uh, it doesn't work very well. But that's, this is kind of the tension, you can imagine, that we would have faced in that church at that time. So Paul wrote to correct this distortion in the gospel. And, and, and he was pointing out, here's the, here's the problem with, with covenant faithful obedience to the Torah, is that every single one of us is going to fail at some point. Because nobody will ever be able to fully keep the law, to keep the Torah. And as a result of that, if you cannot keep it, what you end up with then is what's called the curse under the law. You will be cursed by the law. And so the only way to be justified is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself lived a life of perfect obedience under the law. And Jesus completed or fulfilled all of the sacrificial requirements of the law through his own death on the cross. So Jesus literally took the curse of the law upon himself on our behalf. And so the only way to enter into right relationship with God and to live in relationship, right relationship with God is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. And the, be the best thing about this news is, is this free gift is available to Jews as well as to Gentiles. And it's available to all of us. Isn't that good news? I mean, that's the best news ever. So this is the backdrop of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23. So I'm going to read it, and you can follow along, and uh, then we'll dive into the text. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of God. Can we pray? Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. And thank you that it's, it's powerful and living and active and, and that it's for us. What a gift. And God, we pray today that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. And God, that our hearts would be tender to um, allow it to penetrate, that we might be changed and you might do your good work in us. Thanks for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I, I just want to point out four realities of our renewed identity in Christ this morning from the text. Here's the first one. Did you know you have a complex identity? Your identity isn't, wasn't just formed in a vacuum, okay? It, it didn't come from you just doing a deep dive to inside of yourself. As it turns out, your identity is a complex mixture of different factors in your life of what we might call identity markers. And these markers uh, come together to form a complex and unique identity, which is uniquely you. So you can observe actually some of these identity markers in the text. It talks about it. You be, so uh, uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What are those? Those are, those are identity markers that determine who you are. Now, I wonder if how many of us this morning have heard the very popular phrase, I just have to find myself. You heard that phrase before? I always, I'm always puzzled at that phrase. I try to marvel at it because I don't know exactly what it means. Um, you know, does it mean I'm lost? You know, does it mean my face is somewhere on a milk carton? Right? What does it mean that I have to find myself? Well, essentially, what it means is it, the idea behind it in finding yourself is, is to search deep down inside of yourself and to really figure out who you are. But more often when we talk about it culturally, we talk about finding out who you are, but differentiated completely from your experience or from your environment. Now, as it turns out, I don't know about you, but I find that finding yourself in this way is a lot harder than we might think. For one, we're walking living contradictions as human beings. I mean, our feelings change from day to day. We are a moving target. I don't know about you, but me on the inside, sometimes I'm all over the map. So to try and pin me down on any given day and then compare me to the next day, I'm a walking, living contradiction. But also, as human beings, we're pretty good at lying to ourselves. It's a phenomenon known as self-deception. Jeremiah would say, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it, right? And I tend to agree with Jeremiah, and I have lots of personal empirical evidence to back it up. I really am self-deceptive. But finally, as it turns out, your identity isn't something that you just create in a vacuum. It's not 100% completely differentiated from your experience in your environment. As a matter of fact, so much of your identity is informed by uh, all the other factors in your environment and comparing yourself to all of the other factors in your environment. And your identity is a composite of all of these different identity markers that exist in your life. Now, I want to take a moment. Just, I, want to, I want to walk through this because I think it's important. I, I just want to take a moment and point out 11 of the most significant identity markers that you will find in your life. And they're, they're really, really important. Uh, first of all, here's number one. Your race, ethnicity, and nationality. So what is your race? Your, your race is essentially your genetics. Your, it, it affects your skin pigmentation, your face type, your body type, okay? Your ethnicity. 
That refers to the people group in a geographic region who share language, heritage, and customs. And the thing about race and ethnicity is sometimes they overlap, sometimes there's some differences between the two. Your nationality is about the country in which you were born. So your legal or social relationship to a state. So I think most of us who are Canadians, we would say, yeah, there's a difference between Canadians and Americans, right? We would agree. The Americans have a very strong national identity. So do Canadians. Our national identity is just simply we're not Americans. That's who we are, right? Um, you know, I, I, I love to joke with people who are from New Zealand, the Kiwis. I like to say to them, oh, you're from New Zealand. That's the capital of Australia, isn't it? Whoa, sparks fly when you say something like that because they are very distinct nationalities. So the second thing is your culture. What is your culture? Well, your culture consists of your shared beliefs, practices, and values. And the thing about it is, is that you are living in multiple cultures all at once. You are living in, in literally a kaleidoscope of cultures. It could be a family culture. You could have a school culture. You might have a workplace culture. You might have a little friend group culture. Or we have a church culture. But culture is part of it's informing your identity. Third, your gender and sexuality. Now, many will say that your sexuality has more to do with your biology, and your gender is more with your identity in respect to that biology, and these certainly do overlap, and that's about as deep as I dare go this subject matter this morning, okay? Uh, we'll get there someday. Number four, your physical and mental capacity. Okay, some people are strong and fast. Others are trying to keep up. Some of you have incredible memories. Some of you lose your car keys every single day. And you know the person I'm talking about who's sitting next to you. Number five, your family of origin. Most people have a family of origin. It might be biological. It might be adopted. But whether we like it or not, our family affects us and our family can rub off on us. There's an old saying, the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. Number six, your age. Your age factors into your identity. And you see yourself differently depending on what your age was. The 8-year-old Rob saw himself in this way. The 28-year-old Rob saw himself this way. Now the 48-year-old Rob sees himself much differently than he did. So you're constantly changing your identity as you age. Number seven, your relationships. So your relationship status affects your identity. Are you single? Are you married? Are you widowed? Are you divorced? Your relationship categories affect your identity. Are you a friend? Are you a sibling? Are you a parent? Are you a mother? Are you a grandparent? Number eight, your occupation. So your work and your accomplishments are an important part of your identity. I mean, think about it. What is one of the first questions we ask somebody when we meet them? So, what do you do, right? We want to know what they do. Why is that? Because if I can understand what you do, maybe I can understand a little bit more about you. I can understand your identity. Number nine, your possessions. Your possessions inform your identity. Have you ever thought about that? If you own a house, it says something about you. If you own a private jet, it says something about you. The same could be said about a rifle or a unicycle or a pet tiger. Joe Exotic. Your religion, number 10. Your religious beliefs inform your identity because what do religious beliefs do? They frame your ultimate view of identity. And where do you find yourself today? Right in the middle of that reality. So even if you're agnostic or skeptical or atheistic, you still have an ultimate view of reality. And that is based on faith. Number 11, your personality. I'm an Enneagram 3. Any Enneagram people in the house? Shout out your number. What is it? 
Okay, okay, yeah, you got some Enneagrammers? Okay, there we go, awesome. No more threes? Guess I'm in charge. Okay, um, I'm an ENTJ on my Myers-Briggs, MBTI, type indicator. So we all have an Enneagram number, we all have a personality, or, you know, if you don't use those technical terms, you might say you're quiet or sassy or comical or calm or larger than life. But you have a personality, and that personality is part of your identity. Now, what's interesting about these 11 factors is that the Bible recognizes each of them. You know, I could take the time and walk through Scripture and demonstrate how each of these markers are actually used to identify different individuals or people groups in Scripture. I'm not going to take the time. It's on the cutting room floor. We don't have the time to do it. So if you ever want my notes for that, I could send it to you. But what this means is that, that people, human beings, are very complex. And, and you, therefore, shouldn't be defined by just one part of your identity. Because you can't just separate out one part of your identity and say, this is who I truly, really am. Because your, your identity is, is made up of many entwined factors. It's very complex. So I, I, I try to imagine it this way. Y you are like a Starbucks drink, okay? You are a grande cafe mocha with whole milk, extra hot, with four long shots of blonde espresso and topped with whipped cream and cinnamon dolce sprinkles. Can I hear an amen, Kincaid? Yeah, all right. Our in-house barista. Okay, so this is a complex drink. It's also a heart attack in a cup. It is a diabetic episode just waiting to happen, but it's delicious, Okay. Once I make this drink, can I really separate out its components? I mean, you might say, yeah, well, I, I can taste the cinnamon, but are you really just tasting cinnamon, or are you tasting cinnamon in reference to the chocolate that's in there? And, and I might be able to taste those two things, but then I'm adding blonde espresso, which just adds to the layers and the complexity of the drink. See, we like to fixate on, on one part of our identity, but we are much more complex than that as God's creations. We are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. But once you put all the identity markers together, it's hard to separate them out. So, who are you? You know, if you were to say, these are the five elements to go into my Starbucks drink of who I am, this is what I would say about myself. That's a good lunchtime question pull out the 11 factors, and talk amongst yourself. Okay, what else do we discover from the text? Number two, you have a new identity in Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us a new identity, and it is a Christ identity. And I just want to point out two aspects of that identity from the text this morning. First of all, the first part of that identity is we become children of God. So we move from being enemies and slaves to sin to being adopted and welcomed into the family of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 26. He says, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, when you read that this morning, you might be wondering, okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why does he say sons rather than sons and daughters here? I mean, is, is Paul a, a bigot? Is Paul sexist? What's wrong with this guy, okay? Well, actually, it, it is actually quite the opposite if you read the text appropriately. Because in the culture of Paul's day, the sons were the only ones who received the inheritance. But Paul is now writing to a group of men and women. And he's saying, you are all sons. 
In other words, he's breaking this cultural reality, and he's saying, you all, men and women, get the inheritance. But not only that, you all have equal access to the Father. You all belong. You all are part of the family. You're all on the same level. And this is what it means to have identity as a child of God. But not only are we children of God, Paul also says that we are in Christ Jesus. Paul says that we were baptized into Christ. That, that word baptized in Greek is baptizo. And what it means is to fully submerse, fully submerge somebody. So what this means is that when we are in Christ Jesus, we are full on in Christ, body and spirit, heart and mind, every single part of us. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is a supernatural spiritual union takes place and you are placed in Christ Jesus. So that means your whole identity, your whole being is submerged in Christ. So these are the two aspects of identity that Paul is saying for us. You are given a new identity in Christ. Here's the third, third reality. Your Christ identity has ultimacy. See, in the text, we notice something about this new identity. What we learn about it is that it supersedes or that it stands above all of the other components, all of the other aspects of our identity. Look at verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For what? You are all one in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is that when you are in Christ Jesus, our new identity supersedes all of these other identity markers. So it's not only more important than them, but it actually governs all of them. So if you can imagine this, it's like all of your identity markers are like the spokes on a bicycle wheel going round and round. But your identity in Christ is the hub of the wheel and is the frame, the rim around that wheel. Now, spokes are going to get damaged, they're going to get bent, some are going to be cracked, some of them are going to be crooked, okay? But if you pull out the hub, that wheel is shot. If you get rid of the rim, there is no wheel. Christ Jesus, his identity governs our whole being as followers of Jesus, every part of your identity. So here's, what I, here's the big idea. The Bible confirms the legitimacy of our identity markers, but it also denies their ultimacy. So it doesn't mean that your other identity markers don't matter. They matter. But when you receive Christ Jesus in your life, he begins to redeem and restore all of those other aspects of your identity, every part of it. So think of it this way. When you consider your identity, where do you put the word Christian? So many of you might know this. I'm not sure if you do, but I'm, I'm a Métis. I'm a proud Métis man, Okay. And so my ethnicity that I often identify with is a Métis person. Here's the question. Am I a Christian Métis or am I a Métis Christian? Which comes first in terms of my identity? My Christ identity or my ethnicity? Well, the answer for me as a follower of Jesus and as I read Scripture is I would say I am a Christian Métis rather than a Métis Christian. You might say it's just semantics. Okay, maybe. But by illustration, I believe that's who I am. What about my sexuality and gender? Am I a Christian male or am I a male Christian? Well, I would say I'm a Christian male. 
Now, it doesn't say that my Christ identity negates that other part of my, my uh, identity. It doesn't negate my ethnicity. It doesn't negate my sexuality. But it does identify which of part of my identity is primary, which is the hub, which is the wheel that governs my life. So what this means is that in all aspects of my life, my Christ identity determines my choices, my values, my behavior above all of the other identity markers that are a part of my life. And, you know, if you go this way as a follower of Jesus, there will be times where you will experience a collision of identities. And I think we experience that often enough as followers of Jesus. In other words, uh, there will be parts, times when one part of your identity will want to become more important than your Christ identity, or it's running contrary to what your Christ identity says about yourself. Um, it will be it will want to be the key determiner of your values and your behaviors rather than your Christ identity. Now, Paul says something really interesting in verse 27 about this. He says this. He says, As many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, what this means, without getting too technical in the original language here, is this. Even though we were baptized into Christ, so we were submerged in Christ, we were given this new identity, even though we were baptized into Christ, we still need to choose to put on Christ. In other words, you need to recognize your new identity, you need to choose to live in your new identity, and you need to walk in your new identity. We have to put on Christ. We are baptized into Christ, we're giving this new identity in reality, but in terms of practical living and perception, we need to put it on. Like every morning when you put on clothes before you walk outside, you need to put on your new identity in Christ. Choose that as your right outfit and walk into life. That's what Paul is saying. All right, here's the final reality. Your markers can become idolatry. When any identity marker in your life becomes your ultimate, it can lead you toward idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when we take anything in our lives and make it into an ultimate thing. It's something to, uh, we look to as our ultimate source of significance and security or safety and fulfillment. It's when we build our sense of self or our value or worth on something other than God. And when we do that, the Bible would say we are guilty of idolatry. Now, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, it doesn't have to be an addiction or an affair or something like that. Good things can become idols in our lives. It could be a career, it could be a job, it could be possessions, it could be family, it could be a political ideology. When we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, it then becomes a bad thing. Now, if you've been at Crosspoint for a while, I, I will admit you've probably picked up, boy, that Rob guy, he really mentions idolatry a lot. I mean, what's the deal with that, okay? And I realize I do mention a lot. Probably at least once or twice a year, I end up talking about idolatry in some form, okay? But here's why. I mention it a lot because the Bible mentions it a lot. As a matter of fact, the Bible will say that idolatry is like the root sin behind all the other sins that we can do. Fundamentally, at its core, idolatry is spiritual idol adultery. Idolatry is cheating on God with some other mistress. So I actually I can't not talk about idolatry every once in a while because it's so important and because it is an insidious and it's a destructive force in our lives. Idolatry. Now, the thing about identity markers is they too can become idols in our lives. Uh, let, me, let me read Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God. Here's what he says. He says, our need for worth is so powerful 
that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think of ourselves as highly irreligious. What's he saying? He's saying that essentially everybody is looking for this God-shaped fulfillment. And we will even look for it in identity. So, besides being a, a sin, what's the problem with idolatry, practically speaking, for each and every one of us? Well, the Bible identifies a couple of problems. The first problem is this. The problem with idols is they, they ultimately fail us. Um, identity markers, as it, as it were, are inadequate. They're insufficient for building your life on. Jeremiah would say that the idols in our lives, they're, they're, like, they're like leaky cisterns that can't hold water. They just leave you thirsting for more. It's like drinking seawater in many ways. And, and I said that last week, and, and this is the premise of the, of the message, is that we are meaning seekers and we are meaning makers. And, and we're always looking for something here on the horizontal plane to try and satisfy a longing that can actually only be felt through the vertical axis, the vertical plane with God. So we're looking in the imminent in order to find the transcendent, and it never works for us. We're just constantly thirsty. So we see this played out in, uh, in Jim Carrey's presentation speech at the 2016 Golden Globes. Let's watch Jim Carrey for a moment. Upcoming film, True Crimes. Please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. I love that. What's he saying? He's, he's saying we, we have this thirst for meaning. And the Bible would say it's an infinite thirst for life. And, you know, Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity into the hearts of men. And Jesus in John chapter 4, he says that we have this eternal thirst for living water that only he himself can fill. So we're meaning seekers. We are meaning makers. But the thing about idols is idols never fulfill. The finite cannot fill the infinite void. They never satisfy. And eventually, they will break our hearts. The other problem with idols is that they degrade us. 
You know, the Bible teaches that uh, we become like what we worship. Psalm 135, verse 18 says this about those who make idols. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In other words, we shape our idols, and our idols then shape us. You know, one author put it this way. He says, we become like the God we behold. We appear like the God we admire. We duplicate the God we deify. We favor the God we follow, and we match the God we magnify. When you make an identity marker in your life, your ultimate, it can change you, and sometimes in very degrading ways. For example, what would happen if we made our race or our ethnicity our ultimate marker for being? How would that shape you? Where possibly might that lead? Well, inevitably, as we see shown throughout human history, is it can lead to racism. And what we mean by that is the dehumanization or the marginalization of other people who are not part of our race or our tribe. We have all sorts of examples from human history. We, um, aside from even just the most recent history, we have during World War II, the Nazis calling the Jews rats, the Japanese calling the Chinese insects, Americans calling the Japanese monkeys. During the Rwanda genocide, the Hutus calling the Tutsis cockroaches and snakes. And we see all sorts of horrific things done as a result of this. When you make your ultimate identity race, for example it can lead you down a destructive path. We shape our idols, and our idols shape us. But there are so many other ways that we can see this played out in our practical lives. Uh, if you build your identity in work, so your, your career or your accomplishments, you risk becoming a driven workaholic and maybe a very boring person to be around because all you seem to talk about is work. Work, 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 okay? Nobody wants to be around you. And, and you might even begin to see people differently. You might see people as assets or objects or commodities, but never friends. And if you succeed, you succeed at work, you might lose your family and friends. If you fail at work, you might become a really, really depressed person. Here's another example. If, if you built your identity on relationships and approval, well, then you might be the kind of person who's constantly hurt by criticism from other people, or the kind of person who fears confronting other people lest you break up the relationship. You might be the kind of person who's maybe more like a leech, and you just kind of suck the life out of the room and then the life of everybody around you. And if that's the case, you might not be a very useful friend, and you might even lose some friends as a result. And that's by taking this one part of your identity marker and making it your ultimate. But Jesus offers us an alternative way. He says, I want to give you a new identity, a Christ identity. I want to give you the opportunity to come and to be part of my family, to receive all the benefits of what it means to be a child of God in my kingdom. I want to invite you into a supernatural spiritual union with myself. I want to give you a new identity. And it's a loving identity. It is a liberating identity. It is a powerful identity, and it is identity that will transform you into the image of my son so that you become who you were designed to be from the beginning, the best version of yourself, not according to Win Oprah Winfrey, but the best version of yourself according to Scripture, which is you being renewed into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ.
That's who God wants you to be. And he invites each and every one of us into this new identity. Listen, idols will fail us. Idols will degrade us. But Jesus has a solution for our broken and distorted identities. His solution is to give us himself so that through faith we might enter into this spiritual supernatural union. As we close this morning, I simply want to ask you a question. What identity have you been wearing lately? And what would it look like for you today to be clothed in Christ Jesus instead? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we love you. We love you for who you are and for all that you've done. And we ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts and our minds that we might see who we truly are in Christ. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us everything we need to understand this new identity and to live in it. Thank you that your divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who loves us. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.